Jeremiah chapter 23, beginning with verse 9 and going to the end of the chapter, and also we will do chapter 24. I'm pausing is because it's not ESPN back there in the booth. You ready? He was an officer in the church, and he was engaged in an adulterous affair with a younger, more attractive woman than his wife of 25 years. When confronted by his pastor, he decided to seek counsel from the pastor of a large mainline church in his community. And after discussing the affair with that minister, he is reported to have asked, you have made me feel so good about my relationship with this other woman. May I ask her to come and talk to you about it? A Christian minister encouraging adultery. He was the pastor of a reformed church, in a conservative, reformed denomination. And in the process of counseling women in his congregation, he seduced sexually four of them, at least four who were willing to confront him in a court of law. The rumor is that there were probably up to a dozen. He's facing a prison sentence for abusing his role as a trustworthy pastoral counselor. A reformed minister engaged in adultery, serial adultery. Among the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing, says the Lord, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood And they strengthen the hands of evildoers. Verse 14 of this 23rd chapter of Jeremiah. We are not so far removed from the immorality of religious spokesmen in our day than Jeremiah was in his day. We are sadly reminded of the ongoing contemporary relevance of the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. Now on your outline, you will notice that I have paralleled patterns of two 
with respect to chapter 23, 9 to 40, and chapter 24. We'll get to 24 in due time. But in chapter 23, we have the pattern to what? Perhaps if you've had a chance to look over the rest of the chapter, you know what the two types of things are here. Okay, your head went up quickly. Two types of prophets, and what types of prophets are there, Kay? The prophet that says, really says God's word. Oh, they are what prophets? Give me one word. Good. They're good? Okay, give me another word. True. They're true prophets. And what are the other ones? False. They're false. True and false prophets. <clears throat> okay? Now, you notice I've actually constructed a whole series of uh, columns there at the a midpoint of the first page of your outline, but before we take a look at that in detail, let's notice the structure of this chapter, or at least verses 9 to 40 of this chapter. And you'll notice I have placed parallels in two columns. Prophets in verse 9, parallel to prophets in verse 21, And that's stacked on top of dream in verse 25 and dreams in verse 32. On the right-hand side of that pattern, the duplication of declares the Lord in verses 23 and 24, so they're stacked on top of one another. And then in verse 33, the phrase abandon you, and in verse 39, the same phrase in the Hebrew form. Now, if those of you have the New American Standard, you will notice that in verse 39, the New American Standard reads, cast you away. Uh, That's a place where I'll critique the New American Standard. They should have translated in parallel or exactly as they had translated, namely abandon you in verse 33, is the same Hebrew word, That appears in 39, so it should be translated synonymously. All right, now, the structure, which places on the left-hand side in columns the prophets and the dreamers, or those receiving dreams, is a bracket around the false prophets. And so they are lined up in this chapter in parallel columns, which are interrupted by other parallel columns, namely the declaration of the Lord and the Lord's declaration that he will abandon them. Now that is God's response to the false prophets, and that's the reason we have this interleaved or duplicate structure. God is reacting to the false prophets as they display themselves in the course of this chapter. So that's the reason we have these uh, twofold paradigms uh, structurally uh, in the unit. All right, now that brings us to uh, the details of the contrast between the true and false prophet in this 23rd chapter, a very detailed and meticulous comparison or contrast between those two types of individuals. So let's fill in the blanks as we go. And first of all, uh, beginning with you, Art, 
The true prophet has the word of what? Verse 9. Or if you were a true prophet, what would you guess you would have? Word of the Lord. The word of the Lord, which is in there in verse 9. Exactly. And what about the false prophets? Ben, what about the false prophets? Verse 16. The word of what? The word of their own imagination. Interesting here, um, even though in this chapter we will find that the false prophets will claim or pretend to have the word of the Lord, they in fact are spinning the dreams of their own imagination. This is a very important contrastive principle. It is a way in which you should be evaluating every sermon you hear. Is what you are hearing being spun out of the imagination of the preacher, or is it coming from the word of the Lord? This is something that you must discern. It's not something that you must assume. You must judge every sermon rightly on the basis of what the word of the Lord speaks in the text. You are the guardians of that word. You are the ones who are responsible to hold accountable the pulpit of the preaching of the gospel. Now, it is true. There are rulers who are over you. But if you do not speak when you hear something that is not according to the word, then the rulers will not act. You are the guardians of the truth. It is the truth of God for you. You must hold the preachers of that truth to accountability for preaching that word truly. You are not doing a disservice to the office to call into question an interpretation which you believe has been spun out of the imagination of the speaker. Let us pray, God, that we have faithful men delivering the word. That is certainly the purpose for which we train them and send them forth. However, you must judge righteous judgment. Even as Jeremiah is reflecting upon how he judges, or God through Jeremiah judges, righteous judgment against the false prophets. Spun out of the whimsies of their mind. All right. Now, the second contrast comes from the word counsel in verses 18 and 22. And perhaps we need to ask, what does this word counsel mean? Spelled C-O-U-N-C-I-L. What if it were C-O-U-N-S-E-L? We do have two English words that are pronounced counsel, do we not? And what would C-O-U-N-S-E-L be? Scott? It's like a counselor. You're receiving counsel. So giving giving counsel counsel or advice. Okay, what do we have here? C-O-U-N-C-I-L. 
Okay, what do we have here? You, you lifted up your head again. I like it when you lift up your head. No, I shouldn't have done that. No, no, no. It's nice to see you smile and face. His counsel would be his words, his wisdom. Mm, okay, but what are we talking about when we see CIL counsel? It's, it's not a person sitting and giving you advice, is it? What is it? From your CRC background. <laughs> Some of us would say that's a good thing, but at any, at any rate, in, in your in your in your upbringing, uh, you you certainly heard of the meeting of the council. What did they mean by that? No, not not here, Loretta. Correct. In, in the old CRC polity, it talked about the consistory or the council, meaning the board of rulers. All right, so now we're talking about a, a, a gathering, okay? So what council is this in verse 18? Loretta, what council is this? It's the council of the Lord. Now, where is that? Heaven, she guesses. You're you're pretty sure. Okay, let's turn to Psalm 89 for a minute. Psalm 89, verse 7. The Hebrew word that Jeremiah uses here, the Lord uses to reveal to Jeremiah, the Hebrew word is not used very often in the Old Testament. But in Psalm 89, verse 7, it is used in context where we will see that Loretta's surety is sure. And so because it's her surety, we'll ask her to read verse 7 of Psalm 89. Please, Loretta, thank you. And God greatly feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him. Around him where? Notice verse 5. In heaven. All right, now who are these holy ones? Loretta, you're doing so well, I'm going to keep you on the hot seat here. Who are the holy ones? Who are these holy ones? The Trinity? Not quite. Not quite. I like that idea. It seems to me it goes back to uh, when two or three are gathered together in my name. No, I am this, there in their this presence. Is, this, is, this is a heavenly. This is a heavenly assembly. So it's angels. It's the angels. Correct. <clears throat> All right. Now it could also include some glorified saints. We're not sure about that, but the Hebrews 12 makes a suggestion it may include this. But it certainly is God and the angelic host. They are like a divine council. <clears throat> So when God says to Jeremiah in verses 18 and 22, who has stood in the counsel of the Lord, these false prophets have not stood there. But what do we gather from standing in the counsel of the Lord for Jeremiah? What, what is the implication there, Terry? What do, you, what do you think of that? Who has stood in the council of the Lord? Jeremiah stood in the council of the Lord? 
Yes, when you stop to think about it, you, you have to you have to understand what he means here. Ben, suggestion? Uh, I'm sorry. Are you are you still talk, are you talking about the false ones or the? I can't. I'm just thinking of something. Okay, the false ones can't stand there, right? Obviously. All right. So is Jeremiah standing there? Yes, he's standing there because he's the true prophet. How is he standing in the council of the Lord? Is he standing at assembly in heaven with the angels around the throne of God? But by inspiration, he's receiving what comes out of the council of the Lord. Yes, that's the idea. It's derivative. But insofar as he receives it, it is as if he were present in the council of God, in the council room itself, hearing it directly from the mouth of God. All right. This is a distinction which sets apart the true from the false prophet. He hears from the very throne room of God what God speaks to him, reveals through him, breathes into him, inspires All right, what about the false prophet? Did you have a question, Ben? No, that's what I was thinking. Well, that's the Council of the Wicked. Council of the Wicked. Very good. Very good. Council of the Wicked, the Council of the World Powers of this Age, which is certainly going to flow out of this chapter. The false prophet is oriented to the power structures of this age. And that's one of the reasons when you hear social gospel preaching, you immediately put up your antenna. That is the counsel of this age. It is not the counsel of heaven. All right. Now, the next quality, moral integrity, which is walking in the way of the Lord, is in contrast to what is specified in verse 10. Namely, that the false prophets walks in an evil way. Their course is evil. Now, the true prophet receives his direct revelation from whom? Mary Lou, who would a true prophet receive his revelation from? Directly from? God. God. Very good. (laughs) Verse 18 indicates it comes directly from God. Now, Terry... What about the false prophet? What does verse 25 indicate? These false prophets. Dreams. Dreams, yes. And what kind of dreams? Notice verse 32. Dreams. Now, why do we make that distinction? <clears throat> Robert, why do we make that distinction? Dreams and false dreams. Well, um, Daniel got uh, his prophecies in dreams. Very good. Who else? Who else would come to mind? Someone receiving revelation from God by dream. 
Joseph. Very good. Two Old Testament figures in particular, not the only ones, but they're the two most prominent ones who do receive revelation from the counsel of God from his very throne room. And it is authoritative revelation. So it's important for us to note what Jeremiah notes here, namely in verse 32, these dreams are not dreams of true revelation. They are false dreams. They are dreamers claiming out of their own imagination to be speaking forth the word of God. All right, now, the true prophet preaches what? We're back to you, Art. Verse 19. How would you label the content of that verse? Verse 19. Verse 19. Sum up verse 19 in one word. True prophet preaches what? Destruction. Okay, close enough. We'll say judgment. Now compare that with verse 17. What does the false prophet preach? Back to you, Art. No harm will come to you. You will have what? Peace. Peace. Now, this is not the first time we have seen this emphasis upon the false prophet preaching peace. Where else have we seen it, Scott? Um... Peace, peace, when there is no peace? Well, uh, earlier in Jeremiah? Right. Are you thinking about the other prophet that uh, peach, preached peace but was uh, oppressing Jeremiah? Not yet. They haven't come to him yet. Back in chapter 20, I think it was. That's okay. posture. Yeah. He wasn't preaching, he was a royal priest. <laughs> okay. Then I've, then I've forgotten. Okay, we go back to the temple sermon. <clears throat> where they're calling upon the presumption on the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is here, in which they believe that they'll have peace because of the presence of the temple. Which means that they believe that Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem is indestructible. They're presuming upon the presence of that building to render them inviolable. What's the word inviolable mean? Indestructible means not destructive, not able to be destroyed. What's inviolable mean? Art, you've got your head up. Not able to be violated? Not able to be violated or assaulted, okay? What about invulnerable? What's invulnerable mean? Okay, I saw you wince there. That, that what, the last time you had your head up, it was a nice broad smile. Vulnerable means that you're subject to bad things. So invulnerable. What, what kind of bad things if you're vulnerable? Loretta, what kind of bad things? That can hurt you can give me a better word than hurt. Destroy. Not destroy. We got with indestructible, we got destroy. I'm perfecting your vocabulary. <laughs> Anybody on invulnerable? Cannot be, cannot be, cannot be wounded. 
cannot be wounded, <clears throat> comes from the Latin word vulnero, to be <clears throat> put, pierced through or wounded. Yes, you had the right idea, <clears throat> but we wanted to get the precise sense. All of these <clears throat> words, indestructible, inviolable, invulnerable, are part <clears throat> of the propaganda that is being spewed by the false prophets in Jeremiah's day. <clears throat> they are saying that the city is indestructible because the temple is here. It is inviolable because of the wall around Jerusalem. It cannot be assaulted. And it is invulnerable because we cannot be wounded. God is on our side. That's the message of the peace party in Jeremiah's Jerusalem and Judah. All right, now, <clears throat> the true prophet has the message of whom? Robert? Verse 16? First question. Or, or just guess. The true, true prophet has the message of God himself. The message of God. All right. The false prophet has the message of what? Verse 30. Did I hear it? God. Not God for the, for the false prophet. For the true prophet, yes. Verse 16. Message of God. <clears throat> what does the false prophet have? Verse 30. Ben, what does the false prophet have? The message of others. Yes, the message of others, which, if you'll notice from that verse, has been borrowed or stolen. Now, here's an interesting question about that 30th verse. They steal my words. They borrow my words. Is God suggesting that the false prophet has his words? Pardon? Could be pulling out of context, or it could be simply pretext. That is, claiming that the words that they've dreamed up or imagined are the word of God. So God is playing devil's advocate here. They're stealing my words. They're borrowing my words from one another. They're really not my words, but nonetheless, they claim they are. And the rest of this unit from 32 on down would, pro would probably support that uh, interpretation of God's illusion here. In any event, yes, go ahead, Art. My translation says, I am against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. Okay. <laughs> You have the NIV? Yes. yes. <laughs> the, 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 the NIV is giving its commentary as we go. <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with the conclusion of that suggestion because of the later portion of this chapter. However, that's not what the text says. So put that in a footnote if you want, but please don't stick it in the text of the translation. All right. Um, next. The true prophet is sent by whom, Kay? Who would you guess? God. By God. Yes, verse 21 will say is sent by God. <clears throat> but who is the false prophet sent by? All right, now here I'm going to supply the answer. The false prophet is sent by a clique of pious frauds. Now that's my own uh, label. A clique of pious frauds. For instance, do you think that the church officer who was involved in the adultery was a true, genuine Christian believer? Well, it's conceivable that he could have been caught up in a sin like David was, but he was practicing this. 
and even practicing it to the point of being encouraged by another minister to keep on committing adultery with this woman. Is that fraudulent Christian testimony? He could, he could fold his hands all he want. He could go to that church all he wanted. In fact, he did. But he's a pious fraud. What do we do with this minister, this reformed minister? Who's preaching to his people on Sunday morning, seducing women on Monday through Friday. Is that a true minister of the word of God? That's a pious fraud. In fact, that's an evil, perverse, pious fraud. And yet he had this air of piety about him. Till he ended up in jail. All right. So that's the reason I'm suggesting that the false prophet has this aura of piety. And yet, he is an evil fraud. Okay, now, the true prophet has divine what? Verse 29. Anyone? Power. Power? Anything else? How about authority? Is not my word like a fire? Where would you find that in music? Loretta? Is not my word like a fire? And like a hammer that shatters the rock and breaketh in pieces? Go ahead, Kay. Not the Messiah, but it is an oratorio. Elijah. Mendelssohn's Elijah. Yes, so have I. Wonderful, wonderful oratorio. Are you going to sing it, Loretta? Elijah, yes. Yes, okay. <clears throat> All right, this is, this is where that part of the libretto came from. It came right out of the book of Jeremiah. <clears throat> it's Elijah singing uh, after the prophets of Baal, or after he appears at Mount Carmel. All right, <clears throat> so this indicates the authority of God's word. It's like a hammer that breaks a rock. It's like fire. All right, now, what do the false prophets claim? They falsely say the Lord says. So they're claiming what? What does the true prophet have? What did you write in your answer there when he said the true prophet has divine what? Authority. Yes, yeah, so what's the false prophet claiming? That they have divine That he has divine authority. Yeah, he's claiming that the Lord declares through him, but he doesn't. It's a dream. It's a will-o'-wisp. It's his own imagination. It's spun out of his own fraudulent self-interest or desire for power. All right, now we can go down through a number of other qualities. The true prophet has God for him. The false prophet has God against him. Now notice in verses 30 to 32 how emphatic that is. Verse 30. I am against the prophets, declares the Lord. Verse 31, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord. Verse 32, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord. That is a emphatic negation of God's rejection of these false prophets. All right, now, on the left-hand side, the true prophet eschews the present culture. What's eschew mean? Scott, what's eschew mean? 
to kind of push away from oneself. Uh, I guess that sets. Okay, he sets himself apart from the present culture. The <clears throat> false prophet mimics the present culture. It's another way to judge the preaching of the word, whether it sounds like the culture or whether it sounds like the word of God, which is standing in judgment over against the culture, particularly if the culture is perverse, as it was in Jeremiah's day. The true prophet stands alone if necessary. The false prophet is a proponent of groupthink. What's groupthink? 1984. There you go. Thank you, George Orwell. And what did it mean in Orwell's great book? We're all, our minds are enslaved by the powers on high. A big brother. Yes, we're all trained to think the same way. We all think like the group, like the herd. You want to think like the herd? You want to think like the group? You want to think like everybody thinks? You want to think like the culture? Okay. You understand the issue. There are places where you can't think like the culture. It's harmless enough, but there are places where you can't, and you have to stand against it, as Jeremiah does in his own culture. All right. The true prophets are moral paragons, false prophets moral hypocrites. Paragon and hypocrite are opposites, so you can figure out what paragon means by its antithesis, its antonym, if you're not aware of its definition. True prophet knows God. False prophet does not know God. True prophet announces judgment on the current political scene, as Jeremiah does. The false prophet announces the ongoing perfectionism of the current political scene, as the false prophets in Jerusalem were doing. They were saying, you know, this is going to go on. What we're doing here in Jerusalem is going to go on to Nirvana. I'm probably insulting Hinduism with that, but nonetheless, my point is that they had no expectation that their so-called progressive society would ever run into a brick wall or into a Babylonian army. The true prophet convicts of sin and repentance from sin. He urges that the sinner choose God's choice and not his own self-serving choice, which means he has to deny himself. For the sake of what God asks him, the false prophet declares that sin is good. No need to repent. Enjoy your sin. Pursue and enjoy it. It's a human right. Demand your own free choice. Jeremiah was living in that kind of a culture. He was facing that kind of encouragement or discouragement, as the case may be, from the prophets who were supposed to be practicing the vocation that he was practicing. It would be like preachers practicing the perversion of the Baal cult. Even as we pointed out in our opening illustration, church officers involved in sexual perversion. Now you say, we can get that one, that one's easy enough. Well, yes, it is easy enough as long as the culture puts a stigma on it, but when the culture doesn't, then what are we facing? When the culture says that adultery is all right, when desperate housewives says that adultery is all right, when your mainline TV programs are talking about people in promiscuous sexual relationships, homosexual relationships, And that's all right. 
Where are we headed? Are we going to say, for the sake of the love of those people who are living in that sinful lifestyle, are we going to say to them, we love you so much that we're pleading with you to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? Stop it. You're destroying your soul. Or are we going to be cowed by those who will refuse us the liberty to say that and perhaps eventually lock us in jail for saying it? Jeremiah would suffer that indignity. All right, there are other moral perversions that are listed in this chapter. Adultery we've already commented on. It is specified in verses 10 and 14. These false prophets are practicing adulterers. In verse 14, I've suggested sodomy with a question mark. Why did I suggest sodomy with a question mark? That that may be a specific perversion arising from that chapter. Terry, why did I suggest that with a question mark? Because he mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. Mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's quite conceivable that because he mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, he has sodomy in mind. I put a question mark beside it because I can't prove it, but it is suggestive. Cult prostitution. Now we've talked about that in a previous uh, uh, <coughs> discussions of the book of Jeremiah. But you'll notice in verse 13 that Baal is mentioned after the pollution of verse 11 is indicated. And that pollution goes back to verse 10, in which the land being full of adulteries is specified. So I'm drawing a connection between the adulteries of verse 10, the pollution of verse 11, which has filled the house of the Lord with wickedness, and in verse 13, the name of Baal. And then notice in verse 14, the horrible thing that he has seen amongst the prophets of Jerusalem. The horrible thing could also be the practice of cult prostitution, sacred prostitution, even in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Verse 27, offerings to Baal. We know that they were offering Sacrifices to Baal, incense, libation offerings. They were also offering their children to Baal. Verse 26, they are deceitful liars. They're not only liars, they're deceitful liars. Notice how God emphasizes that. Anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood, there's the falsehood, there's the lie. They are prophets of deception. They are deceitful liars. Bad enough to be a liar but to lie in order intentionally to deceive. That's corrupt lying. And finally, back to this word pollution, which you will notice occurs twice in this section, verse 11 and in verse 15. In both of those contexts, it is preceded by the word adultery, and in context, it suggests a sexual Depravity or sexual pollution. Now, this section in Jeremiah 23, 9 to 20 is the largest continuous treatment 
of true and false prophets in the Bible. It is the largest extensive treatment of true and false prophets in the Bible. The false religious message of Jeremiah's day, which is detailed here, had consequences. The false religious message in any day has consequences. It not only will coddle or encourage personal evil, personal evil will grow to social evil. Social evil will grow to political evil. And personal evil, social evil, and political evil will eventuate in national death and judgment. That's exactly what happened. Approximately 10 or 20 years after Jeremiah received this revelation from God. Your false religious spokespersons have perverted my word and encouraged individual wickedness and evil. And that individual wickedness has grown into a cult of social evil in your society. All because your religious spokesmen have endorsed it and have said it's acceptable, it's tolerable. It's liberating. And that social evil leads then to political evil because that evil poisons the political mind of the rulers in the places of authority in your society. And the end of that process is a collapse of your political order the collapse of your social order, and the collapse of your personal lives. Collapse into death, sickness, sovereign bombs, mustard gas. Little children with bombs strapped on them and blowing themselves up. That's what happens to your culture. And if you can't judge that for what it is, if you can't call that the culture of evil, if you cringe when somebody says that's an evil empire, if that bothers you because somebody says it is flat out evil and wicked, then come back and read Jeremiah chapter 23 again. And remember what happened to the culture of this time. The audience he was addressing, the religious theologians that he was talking about. Remember what you've read in the text and prepare yourself. Prepare yourself to stand with a true prophet and with the word of God. Because this is not just Jeremiah's doctrine. 
Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 and following. Chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. Who's speaking in the Sermon on the Mount? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the Son of God, who also sat in that council of the Lord. Beware of the false prophets. Is he echoing Jeremiah? Hmm. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They are pious frauds. You will know them by their fruits. How will you know the pious fraud? How will you know the false prophet? By his fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Do we not know that a Christian minister who counseled the benefits of adultery is a false prophet? Do we not know that a reformed minister who committed adultery, multiple acts of adultery, was a false prophet? Do we not know these men by their fruits? Then come ye out from amongst them. Do not support them. They are blind leaders of the blind. And in so far as you attend upon their ministries, so far do you justify their wickedness. Because if they do not have followers, they do not have power. One of the reasons that Jesus may have been thought to be Jeremiah alive from the dead is statements like this. A statement in its context in Matthew 7 that also echoes the 24th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Good and bad fruit. Grapes and figs, he says. Hmm. Had he been meditating upon Jeremiah 23 and 24 before he went up to that mountain to preach? Interesting question. Which brings us to chapter 24 and to your break. We have arrived at chapter 24. And we have another pattern of twos in this chapter. And if anyone has had the opportunity to read the chapter or glance over it, what type of twos do we have here? We had two types of prophets in 23, 9 to 40, true and false. 
What twos do we have here? And what are they? What are the two? There are good and bad figs. We have two types of figs, good and bad. All right, now let's think for a moment about what Jeremiah is doing or what he is seeing here. Who are these good figs? These good figs are the people who? The ones that were taken captive. These are the exiles. Very good, Kay. Yes, the good figs are the exiles. So the bad figs are who or whom? It says it's the king and all his officials and all the other ones who remain. Very good. It is the re- it is the remainder. Yes, the bad figs are those who remain in Jerusalem. All right. So, in your first slot for good and bad exiles, and then bad are the remainers or the remainders or those who remain behind. Now, what's going to happen to the exiles? They are going to be exiled, and then what? They end up in, they're sent to Babylon. And then what? You're right. And then what? I will bring them back to this land. So they will be what? Return. Return to restore. Very good. So. Exiles and restored <clears throat> for your first uh, lay, lay, um, your first line there, the good. And what about the bad? Remain and what? What's going to happen to those that remain? They're going to be made abhorrent. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be destroyed. So the antithesis is not that the good people are going to get to stay. No, the good people are going to get to go because God is actually going to preserve them by sending them into captivity and then restoring a portion of them after the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. Who destroyed the Babylonian Empire? Art, who destroyed the Babylonian Empire? The Persians. The Persians. And who was the king of the Persians that destroyed the Babylonian Empire? Cyrus. Cyrus. And who was king of Babylon when he destroyed it? Belshazzar. Belshazzar. He was having a feast that night. Okay, actually he was the second in command because a fellow named Nabonidus was the king off in the Arabian desert. But nonetheless, and that's the reason that that fifth chapter of Daniel, if Daniel could read the writing on the wall, uh, Belshazzar says he'd make him third in the kingdom because there is actually uh, there are actually two uh, royal figures. All right. So there's going to be a return and that is going to uh, continue uh, the line of the good but those that are destroyed are going to be extirpated by the wrath of God. All right. Now in verse 1 who is Jeconiah? Loretta, who's Jeconiah? The son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Do you know any other names for Je- 
Jeconiah? I'll give you a clue. You can shorten his name that's right there in front of you and get one of them. Sorry, I'm lost. Okay. Carrie? I saw you say it. Coniah. Yes, his other name is Coniah. That's one of his other names. And what's his third name? Robert, what's his third name? Well, it says in the footnotes here that Jeconiah and... Jehoiakim, yes, Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, Coniah, those are all synonyms for the same person. All right, what year are we in? When Jehoiakim was carried away, Ben, your head went up. It's 597, okay? And what had happened to Jehoiakim? He was probably executed, that is correct. In other words, he had died, he was killed. And what did they do with his body, Cheryl? Well, they took it out outside of the gates of, um, gates of Jerusalem, and he was very unceremoniously... Very good, yes. So, it's conceivable that he was assassinated, but we can't prove that. Nonetheless, he's dead at this point, and Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah has been taken captive. Uh, how did he get taken captive? Wasn't he the one that went with his mother and and, and essentially... Very good, Gerald. Yes. Did, did what? He, he delivered himself. Why did he do that? Possibly. Possibly he thought that it would make him better in the eyes of the... Oh, you were doing so well. No, I, I don't think he thought it would make him look better in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. But I am giving him credit for some eudaimonism here. Eudaimonism means a good purpose. Well, wasn't he? Why would he go? Why would he go out and surrender himself to Nebuchadnezzar? If it wasn't to make himself look good, why else might he have done it? Remember, he's got an army surrounding his, surrounding his city wall. Save his neck. Save, yeah, well, that, yeah. Loretta, what did you say? Save his neck. Save his neck. Mm, yes, but what else? Art? Spare the people. Yes, to spare the nation. In other words, he and the queen mother go out and surrender themselves for the sake of the greater good, we might say, the sake of the nation. <clears throat> uh, I, I do think... That that's probably one reason that he's put under house arrest in Babylon. He's not executed. And even at the end of Second Kings uh, and at the end of this book of Jeremiah in chapter 52, you have the note about the fact that he was raised up out of his prison or his house arrest eventually and set free in Babylon. So, I mean, this is speculation, but it is, I think it's a reasonable speculation because the city is spared and Nebuchadnezzar withdraws. He withdraws with the craftsmen and smiths. Notice in verse 1, I don't know what your translation says, that's what the American Standard says. That's duplicated in 2 Kings 24, 14 to 15. You don't need to turn to it. 
But I want to ask, why does the writer mention the craftsmen and smiths? Christina, I'll leave you alone, but uh, if you would like to speak up, by all means, speak up. Not on this one. All right. You're not a smith or a craftsperson. What's a smith? Ben, what's a smith? Well, they need those for making weapons. Yes. Somebody that's like a blacksmith, a metal worker, could be making weapons. Or perhaps something else. Craftsman. Why do you want the craftsman? Art, why did he want the craftsman? Why did Nebuchadnezzar want craftsman? Okay? You haven't seen your smiling face after the break. Well, I think just to do good things for him, to build things. Or- exactly. These are builders, aren't they? Yeah, these are people who are going to build the hanging gardens of Babylon. After all, he's going to build one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, right? So where does he get some of the people to do this? He steals them away. He deports them from Jerusalem. So he wants these skilled laborers to do the kind of thing that he needs them to do to build his great palaces, libraries, hanging gardens for his homesick wife, etc., etc., All right, now in verse 3, God says, what do you see? Now, what did Jeremiah see? And I don't mean just this basket of good and bad figs. What, What does this, what do you see, suggest? Is he in front of the temple? Yes, go ahead. I say he's saying, seeing a vision. That's right. It is a vision. <clears throat> if we turn back to chapter 1, we're going to see that very same question in context in verses 11 and 13. So let's turn back to chapter 1 for a moment and briefly look at verse 11 and 13. This is the commission of Jeremiah at the beginning of his prophetic career. And God says, what do you see? I see a rod of an almond tree. Verse 13, the Lord came a second time. What do you see? I see a boiling pot facing away to the north. All right, now, that was the initial vision of God's commission, confirmation of his call to Jeremiah. He didn't actually see an almond branch in front of him. He had a vision of it. He didn't actually see a boiling pot. He had a vision of it. This is a vision of these baskets of figs. It's not as if there are two types of baskets sitting in front of the temple doorposts. No, this is a vision, and this parallel language indicates that that's what it is. It is still as credible and as authentic and as objective as if they were really there, but nonetheless, it is a prophetic vision. All right, now, skipping down to verse 7. God says, I will give them a new heart. Now, this new heart will be traced through the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as you see. What is significant about the fact that it is common to Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Or do you see any significance to that? Now, is this notion of a new heart appears in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. 
Now, okay, your face went up, but there's, there's, there's a cloud of unknowing upon it. I was thinking this happened, um, one of my thoughts gone. Yeah, it happened when they were being punished, when they were going into captivity, and Mm -hmm. Ezekiel, they already were there. So Ezekiel is already in Babylon with the captives, and he's giving the same prophetic message that Jeremiah was giving before they went into captivity. So these two prophets are contemporary, and they're saying contemporaneous things, particularly about the matter of a new heart. So they're giving hope. After the punishment, there is hope. That's correct. But they are. The, the point is they're contemporary in this, and so this is a large theme at this point, as Kay is pointing out, uh, beyond the destruction and judgment of the city. There's going to be a new hope. Well, what is this new heart? I'll give them a new heart. I'll give them a, a a heart, a whole heart. What is that? Is this, is this related to the idea of the new exodus? It's part of it. But when 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 uh, when God says, "I'll give you a new heart," what, what's He doing? What, what's He describing? He's describing regeneration. Regeneration, exactly. An act of His free grace. He's going to give you a new disposition, going to give you a new nature, going to give you a new center of affection. Your heart before he gave you a new heart did not love God. You were at enmity with God. He will change that. He will take away that heart of enmity. He will give you a heart of affection. He will give you a heart to love him with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, which is what he asks you for. And you will say, yes, Lord, I hear you, and I will love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. No, I won't do it perfectly, but I will certainly aim for that. And that will be my delight and object. All right, now, there's another formula here in this seventh verse. Can you identify that other formula? Yes. And where is it, Ben? Would you read the words where you see the covenant? And I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. There it is. They will be my people, and I will be their God. That is the covenant formula. Now, it is interesting here in Jeremiah 23, because this is a formula that will occur, or actually uh, will be repeated in chapter 31. Verse 31, and I'd like you to turn to that. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. In the newness of that covenant, he will be their God and they will be his people. As out of a new heart... They will be the people of God. He will be their God. They will love him in that relationship. Now, Jeremiah is not done talking about that covenant. Verse verse 40 of chapter 32, the next chapter over from 31. Chapter 32, verse 40. I will make an 
everlasting covenant with them and put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away. This new heart will be involved in a new relationship with God because God will regenerate it. That heart will be his and that heart will say, this God is mine. And that covenant relationship will be new. That is, the old man will die. The new man will be raised, changed, regenerated in terms of a new covenantal relationship. He will delight in the Lord as his God and that he is one of his people. But we're not done with the wonderful extension of the blessing and benefits of this covenant which arises from that new heart which has been given. Not only is it a relationship with God which is new, that is, the old has passed away, but it is a covenant which is everlasting and will never fade away. It will never be revoked. It will endure as long as God endures, who has said, I will be your God. I, who am eternal God, will be your God eternally. And you, who are my child, my person, one of my people, will be one of my people, be my person forever and ever and ever. Because I will never let you not love me. I will always love you. And so you will always love me. And this is how you will know that you love me. If you keep my covenant, if you keep my commandments. It's as simple as that. The regenerate heart says, Lord, how do I love you? And God says, keep my commandments. Love me with your will, your obedience, your disposition, your attitude. That's how you know you love me. And that's how you know I love you. Well, the initiative here is obviously the Lord himself taking that divine initiative because we are powerless to do this. Or maybe we're not powerless. For instance, in verse 7, you notice some translations say they will be my people and I will be their God if they will return to me with their whole heart. Well, if that's a proper translation, if they will return with me with their whole heart, then what is a translation like that suggesting? It's man's initiative. In other words, it's a quid pro quo, right? If you do this, I'll do that. If you return to me with your whole heart, then I will be your God and you will be my people. It would be to insert, if you translate it with an if, it would be to insert a condition into it. What condition could you fulfill to regenerate your heart? To regenerate a heart is going to take what kind of power? It's going to take omnipotent power. It's going to take the same kind of power that brought Jesus out of the grave, Ephesians 1.20. It's going to take supernatural power. It's going to take the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, 
It's not a miracle because you can't see it, but it is supernatural act. It's an omnipotent supernatural act. But if, if we translate verse 7 with the if, then we are suggesting that it doesn't take supernatural power. It doesn't take omnipotent. If we do this, God will do that. If we return to him, then he will be our God and we will be his people. If we fulfill the condition, if we fulfill the condition, then God will do it. But that would destroy the whole marvel of this passage, wouldn't it? For if we translate if in that clause, it means that we've done some, something first. And God is then obliged to do something for us second. Now, the proper translation here is for. Notice how for, which is the way a New American Standard translated, notice how for is completely consistent with what we've explained in terms of the Calvinistic view of salvation, the Calvinistic view of God's divine initiative, the Calvinistic view of the covenant. For they will return to me, that is, the fruit of their new heart, the fruit of this covenant, the fruit of this new and everlasting covenant, the proof of it will be that they will return to me with their whole heart. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 7 that we just read a little bit ago? You'll know them by their fruits. We know the regenerate heart by its fruit. We know the changed heart by its fruit. We know the heart that loves God by its fruit. The heart that has an affection, a passionate affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that heart by its fruit. And it's very important to understand the non-conditional language here. A translation that renders that little preposition by if is a translation which is trying to suggest that man must meet a condition before God will change his heart. You know, I know, that's Arminianism. That's semi-Pelagianism. It's even worse, pushed all the way to its logical conclusion, is rank Pelagianism. All right, now in verse 8, the land of Egypt is mentioned, and there are those dwelling in it. Who is dwelling in Egypt? When Jehoiakim, 597, when Jehoiakim is taken into captivity and Jehoiakim dies, who is in Egypt? Terry, your brow is furrowed. Is it Jeremiah? It is not Jeremiah. But hold off on that. I want to come back to that. Thank you for thank you for prodding me. Zedekiah. Not Zedekiah. He is not going to go to Egypt. Zedekiah is going to go to Babylon after his eyes are burned out. Ben? Well, it was Jehoiakim who were made who had some Arrangement is in Egypt. Who? In Egypt? 
The Pharaoh. What Pharaoh? What was his name? I was going to say Nico. That is correct. When did that arrangement begin? About three years after he had been king. Three or four years after he had been king. No, actually before that. But you're right that it is Pharaoh Nico. It is Jehoiakim and Pharaoh Nico. There is a relationship before them. But let's get precisely when that relationship occurred, when it was established, and why it was established. Art, can you help us? Loretta, can you help us? Okay. Terry? I'll say 605. Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, it lasts until 605. What happens in 605 that interrupts it? Well, Babylon. That's the first siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. He carries away whom? Daniel. He takes away Daniel in 605. All right, so in 605, Babylon comes and calls the shots. Before that, Egypt was calling the shots, before 605. So 605 is a change in Jehoiakim's loyalties from Egypt to Babylon because the army of Nebuchadnezzar is around his walls. Okay, now when did that dependence or when did that relationship with Nico and Egypt begin? The death of Josiah. The death of Josiah, which is what year? Very good, Ben. Well, that would have been. No, we need to go backwards. Anyone help him? 609. 609. And. How is it that Jehoiakim gets to be king with Nico calling the shots? Robert? Nico put him on the throne, didn't he? Yes, but there was already somebody on the throne, wasn't there? Or was there? Who was already on the throne? Oh, yeah. Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz, yes, chapter 22, whose other name is also what? Shallow. Shallow, yes. Remember in 22? Yes, in chapter 22 we went over that. Good for you. Now, you're smiling again, Kay. I've got, yes, it, it, the cloud of unknowing has lifted from you. <laughs> um, yes. All right, now we put it all together. In 609, when Josiah was killed, his son Jehoahaz, also known as Shalom, took the throne. When Nico went up to Carchemish and had to retreat because he was defeated by Nabopolassar, he came back down to Riblah, which is in Syria, and he called Jehoahaz to Riblah and removed him into chains. He put him in fetters and sent him in prison down to Egypt. Why? Probably because he thought that, like his father, he couldn't be trusted. Josiah, you recall, had tried to stop Nico at Megiddo and had been killed for his troubles. So... Nico removes the potential troublemaker and sends him down in captivity into Egypt, places Jehoiakim on the throne, and makes Jehoiakim his puppet. And that lasts, that relationship between Egypt and Judah lasts for four years, from 609 to 605. So, in Egypt, from this verse in Jeremiah 24:8, in Egypt is Jehoahaz also known as Shalom. He's down there. He's been in captivity there for uh, going on 
almost 20 years. I'm sorry, almost 12 years. And uh, others who were attached to him are probably there. And it is conceivable that those who with Jehoiakim rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar and brought Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem the second time in 598, 597 are also down in Egypt because they escaped there. But for, for sure, we do know that Jehoahaz is there and perhaps others of his entourage that were sent down when he was sent into captivity in 609. All right, now back to what Terry suggested about Jeremiah. Terry, what were you alluding to? Well, You're right in your allusion, but explain yourself. Uh, well, he would... I can't remember the timing. Okay, in chapter 43, verses 6 and 7, just make a note of it. In chapter 43, verses 6 and 7, Jeremiah will be taken down to Egypt. So this verse here is suggestive of what has already happened to some of the Judeans and what is going to happen. It's proleptic. It's suggesting that others, like Jeremiah, are going to go down. But Jeremiah is going to be taken forcibly to Egypt. He doesn't want to go down, but he is compelled to go down to Egypt. After the destruction of the city, after 586 B.C., We'll get to that later on uh, next year when we finish this this uh, series on Jeremiah's life. All right, now, uh, skipping down to uh, the blanks after omnipotent uh, in verses 5 to 7 and 8 to 10. You'll notice if you scan those verses that there is an omnipotent I, the first person personal pronoun, I will do, I will build, I will plant, I will give. So it's the omnipotent I of God himself. And that is also true in verses 8 to 10. You see the personal pronoun, first person personal pronoun, emphatically repeated again. Now the difference between the two is that in verses 5 to 7, God is going to actively do something. In verses 8 to 10, he's going to passively do nothing. You'll notice in that eighth verse, in the New American Standard, he says he will give them up in the marginal reading. He will abandon them or give them up. It's very much like the language of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. He will give them up. He will give them up. He will give them up. He will take his hands off of them. He will let them be as evil as they want to be. He will not restrain them. So... It's not as if God has to make their hearts any harder. He just doesn't soften them. He does nothing to stop them from going in their natural course. All right, now, what does he do actively and positively when he does something? Notice verse 6. He sets his eye upon them. When God sets his eye upon someone, that is the eye of his gracious favor. Second, he will build them up and plant them. That's exactly what Jeremiah was told to preach. Preach that God would build them up and plant them, even as he would tear down and destroy them. The two messages go together. Then in verse 7, what will God actively do? He will do something to give them a heart by which they will know him. He will give, they will, he will give them a new heart to know him as their Lord. And finally, verse 7 He will renew his covenant. 
He will make them his people, and he will be to them their God. That brings us to the last page in the outline, and very quickly, since we've got chapter 24 in front of us, let's look at that one first. So skipping down to that line on the outline, the king in this chapter is Zedekiah, because Jehoiakim or Jeconiah has been carried off, and the date we've already established is 597 B.C., Now, if you look at the first verse of chapter 25, while you've got the page open before you, who is the king in chapter 25, verse 1? Anyone? Jehoiakim. And what is the date? It is the fourth year of Jehoiakim. What date is that? Terry? Ben? 605. 605. So it is the year of Daniel's captivity. It is the year of the first siege by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, let's go back to chapter 21 just for a moment, and let's take a look at who is the king in chapter 21. And whenever you find it, just shout it out. It is Zedekiah. And what is the date of this chapter? This is 586 B.C. All right, so chapter 21, King Zedekiah, date 586 B.C., which is the date of the final siege of Jerusalem. Second uh, section on chapter 24, the king is Zedekiah again. The date is 597 B.C. That is the second siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar when he carries off Ezekiel and others, as well as Jehoiakim. Then chapter 25, the date is 605 B.C., which is the... Uh, first siege of Jerusalem. Notice what we have. We have a reverse or a moving backwards through the successive sieges of Jerusalem from chapter 21 to chapter 25, from 586 backwards to 597. And in between, we have a comparison of true and false types. Verse 20, chapter 22, two and false kings. The true king, Josiah, versus the false kings, all that followed him, Shalom, Jehoiakim, Coniah, and Zedekiah. The true and false eschatological king, namely the eschatological Davidic shepherd who is an anti-Zedekiah. True and false prophets, which we detailed earlier this evening. And finally, the true and false people, generically, the kinds of figs, the character of the people who are good and bad. And here is eschatology acting in terms of God's positive uh, refusal to abandon those whose hearts he changes to captivity, uh, to destruction. He abandons them to captivity, but promises to restore them because he is the maker of good character. But by parallel reasoning, he will permit the evil character to to uh, fulfill its own destiny by leaving it to itself. He will abandon it to its evil disposition and he will permit it to be hardened in iniquity. This places a little narrative bracket between chapters 21 and 24. The career of Zedekiah as it's reviewed in terms of the true and false, the being like what is good and unlike in the sense of what is bad or false and comes Uh, Back to chapter 23 at the kind of central portion where we read 
as even we read in this season an Advent messianic prophecy, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he will do justice and righteousness, and this is the name by which he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. You know that has been fulfilled in the Christmas story of the Lord Jesus Christ. I leave you with that everlasting hope and consolation as I leave you with a prayer that you will have a blessed Christmas and a joyous new year. And you will not see me until the new year. <laughs> so on January 10th, 2013, Lord willing, we will resume with Jeremiah chapter 26. Yes, we're, chapter, we're skipping chapter 25. <laughs> Thanks to all of you. Uh, Lord willing, see you next year. Let's pray. Father, it is easy to be discouraged when we see the very close similarities between the sinfulness of our day and the sinfulness of Jeremiah's day. And yet we realize, Lord, that human nature is no different, that the evil that dwells in the heart of men by depravity and disposition is the same all through history. As a consequence, Lord, we are alerted not to boast in ourselves, but to humble ourselves before you and to acknowledge that there but for the grace of God go we. We humbly acknowledge that we are sinners from our mother's womb and that only by the new heart that you have promised here are we able to call you Abba Father. Only through that new and everlasting covenant which has been sealed in the blood of your dear son, are we able to draw near under your throne and know that you are our God and we are your sons and daughters. Lord, we thank you for the fulfillment of this promise of a righteous branch, a righteous branch of David, one who would even be the Lord, our righteousness. We thank you for your dear son for his saving grace, for his love for us, and for that love which has been wrought in us by your grace and spirit. So confirm and assure us of that affection that you have and of that wonderful hope and promise that is ours, as well as that great heavenly council room from which you speak, to which you invite us, and where we shall see you one day face to face. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.